Uh, this is our last week of doing Forerunners of the Faith <clears throat> for at least this year. Um, I'm still talking with Han, Harry, and Mark about whether or not we're going to pick this up in uh, 2021, but we are going to take a break for the holidays. So next week, uh, good news, next week Pastor Harry will be back and he will be teaching uh, a Thanksgiving message since it will be Thanksgiving weekend next week. And uh, then there will be other messages related to Christmas and the holiday season and New Year's. And then as we get past 2020 into 2021, then we'll look towards uh, completing some of our study in church history. Uh, For those of you who might be here for the first time or have only been here for a couple of weeks, uh, we are in the middle of a study through the history of the church. Uh, We started in the book of Acts, which is the original book of church history, and then we kept going. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about where we are here in just a moment. Uh, If you have your workbook, uh, uh, the Forerunners of the Faith workbook, the lesson we're looking at today is on page 49 of the student workbook. It's lesson six. If you don't have your workbook, no worries. You can just follow along with the PowerPoint. If you're wondering where you can get a workbook, They're available in the bookstore if you want one. All right, Forerunners of the Faith, Lesson 6. And this lesson, we're looking at what we call grace and truth. And I want to introduce our time by, first of all, reminding us where we're at. So as we did last week, I want to show you just a very, very rudimentary timeline, just so that we kind of have an orientation of where we are. In fact, just yesterday, my wife and I drove out to some outlets to do a little bit of shopping, and right when we got there, the first thing that we did was we found the directory, and we went to the directory to look for the stores that we wanted to go shop at, and that's what page 19 in your workbook, or this is intended to serve as, is a very rudimentary directory so that we all know where we are in church history. Uh, We've spent time talking about the first century, which is apostolic church history, and it's the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, it's the ministries of the apostles. And then the second century is the apostolic fathers, and these are all individuals that we've talked about, um, including guys like Justin Martyr, uh, the sort of the most well-known of the second century apologists, and then Irenaeus, one of the most well-known of the polemical fathers. And then in the third century, we just briefly talked about Tertullian and Origen. And this entire time period is known as the Antonicene period because it all takes place before the Council of Nicaea. And uh, again, part of the goal of this uh, series is just to introduce you to some of the key terms. If you were to go, for example, purchase a set of maybe a collection of the writings of the church fathers, they would likely be divided into Antonicene and then Nicene and post-Nicene church fathers. So Antonicene just means those church fathers who lived prior to the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is what we talked about last week. It is the 4th century council in the year 325, where the primary doctrinal issue that was defended was the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And then this morning, we're going to be in the 5th century talking about John Chrysostom 
and Augustine and uh, the 5th century uh, kind of, if you look at page 19, it takes us to the end of that first set of 500 years, which we would call the patristic period. Some would extend the patristic period a little bit beyond this, but pretty much everyone agrees that the Middle Ages start when the western half of the Roman Empire falls, and most historians date that to the year 476, which is why you see the fall of Rome there listed as an event that takes place in the 5th century. And this is the Nicene and post-Nicene period of church history. Okay, so our focus today will be on the 5th century, but I just wanted to make sure that everyone had a little bit of context so that as we get started and kind of parachute in, we're doing so recognizing all that's come before. Now, back uh, early on, it was the first week in our first lesson, we talked about three doctrinal pillars that we want to trace through the history of the church. These are the three doctrinal pillars that really define biblical and historic orthodoxy. When we think of the primary doctrines of the Christian faith, it is these three categories that provide for us these essentials. These are the doctrines that must be affirmed in order to be a Christian. So true Christians are those who submit to the supremacy of the Word of God. They, they see the Scripture as their highest authority. They are those who recognize the sufficiency of the work of God, meaning that they understand that they are saved by grace through faith and not on the basis of their own works. And thirdly, they protect the sanctity of the worship of God. They worship God in spirit and in truth. Spirit meaning they approach him with a purity of devotion, and truth meaning that they approach him with a purity of doctrine. They worship him for who he truly is. So I just want to talk briefly about these three doctrinal pillars Because really the goal of today's lesson is to show you that these doctrinal pillars are still intact in the 5th century. Uh, One of the, I think, significant um, misconceptions that Protestant evangelicals sometimes have about church history is they think that after the Apostle John died at the end of the 1st century, that the church pretty much fell off a cliff into heresy and apostasy almost immediately and existed or in some sort of perpetuated state, extended state of apostasy and heresy for almost 1,400 years until the Reformation came along. Uh, That would be an inaccurate understanding of the history of the church. And I think you'll be encouraged this morning to see that even in the 5th century, uh, 400 years after the events of the book of Acts, we have clear testimony to these fundamental doctrines, these essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And while I don't expect you to remember every detail about the individuals that we talk about this morning, I want you to leave encouraged saying, hey, the things that I believe because I see them in the Bible Isn't it cool to know that there are people in church history who believe those same things because they also saw those same things in the Word of God? And we have common convictions, shared convictions, because we have a common authority in the Scripture. 
So, as we think about these three doctrinal pillars, we talked about the sanctity of the worship of God, and really, that's what we talked about last week with Athanasius, because Athanasius defending the doctrine of the deity of Christ, if you don't recognize Jesus Christ for who he truly is, God very God, and in his incarnation, man very man, then you are worshiping the wrong Jesus. And so we saw that doctrinal pillar upheld, defended, articulated clearly at the Council of Nicaea. And then today we're going to focus mainly on the other two, the sufficiency of the work of God, and we're going to look particularly at Augustine in his defense of that doctrine, and then the supremacy of the Word of God, and we will look to Chrysostom for his defense of that doctrine. And so coming out of the 4th and 5th centuries, I just want you to be really encouraged to know that the church is defending these cornerstone doctrines of the Christian faith. And what an encouragement that is for us because we hold those same convictions. Okay, so that's where we're going in today's lesson, specifically looking at Augustine and Chrysostom. Augustine primarily on grace and Chrysostom primarily on truth. And so that's where we get the name for our lesson today, grace and truth. And of course, that's a phrase that comes out of the apostle of uh, the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, we find that grace and truth are realized and founded in the person of Jesus Christ. So the worship of Christ leads to then an understanding of grace through Christ and truth as revealed by him. All right, I want to start with Augustine, uh, or sometimes it's pronounced Augustine, especially if you're from Florida. But uh, Augustine is a more correct pronunciation of his name, though either one is fine. And uh, let me start by telling you just a little bit about Augustine. Oh, did I lose connectivity? There we go. Uh, And that, by the way, that uh, fresco that you see there on the left-hand side, it's from a 6th century painting. It's the earliest painting that we have of Augustine. And even this, as the earliest painting we have, is more than a century after his death. So we have no idea if that's what he actually looked like. But in any case, um, Aurelius Augustinus who we call Augustine, uh, was born in modern-day Algeria. His father was Roman. His mother was North African. And actually, his mother, whose name is Monica, was a a devout Christian. Uh, Her husband was not a believer. Her mother-in-law, who also lived with them, was not a believer. And her son, whom she prayed for desperately and witnessed to often, also was not a believer. So Monica was an amazing woman. In fact, she's known in church history as Saint Monica or Santa Monica. And if you ever go down to the beach or drive on the Santa Monica freeway, Santa Monica is named after Augustine's mom. So I like to tell the students in my classes when they're sitting in traffic, they can think about Augustine because, hey, Santa Monica. So Monica is this godly woman who prays for the salvation of her husband, her mother-in-law, and her son, and lives out a godly testimony. 
And eventually, God answers her prayers, and all three of those individuals come to faith in Jesus Christ. But for Augustine, that path was a long path and quite a journey. He actually writes a book called His Confessions, and it's his autobiography, his memoirs as such. It details his testimony. And in his confessions, he talks about how as a 16-year-old, he left home and really spent the next 15 to 16 years of his life searching for satisfaction in anything and everything other than Christianity. Uh, For Augustine, Christianity was ethically too strict and philosophically too simple that he didn't feel like it scratched either itch. Uh, He wanted on the moral side to explore his freedom, and on the philosophical side, he wanted something more complex. One historian said Christianity was both too much and not enough for a young Augustine. And so he, almost like someone, um, well, the book of Ecclesiastes comes to mind, like Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, searching for life in all the wrong places, Augustine was on a quest to find happiness. In his confessions, in chapter 1, he famously says in a prayer to God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, Lord. And that really was his testimony. He was seeking for satisfaction and never found it until he finally gave his life to the Lord. He searched for satisfaction in romantic relationships, and he searched for satisfaction in philosophical systems. Uh, The first led him to a long um, romantic relationship with a mistress uh, for 15 years. They had a son together. Uh, Their son actually lived into his teenage years and then died. And uh, so romantic relationships outside of wedlock. And then also uh, he eventually becomes part of the Manichaean heresy. Manichaeanism was another one of these ancient heresies. It was a mixture of Christianity and Zoroastrianism. We don't have time to get into all of that, but it was clearly a false religion. Eventually, he leaves Manichaeanism and embraces Neoplatonism. But all of this time, he is searching for both moral happiness and intellectual fulfillment. Augustine was a teacher of rhetoric, and he taught in Carthage and then in Rome. Uh, Eventually, though, he got a teaching position in Milan, And so he traveled to Milan, and there was a preacher in Milan whose name was Ambrose. We didn't talk about Ambrose because we have to be very selective about who we talk about in this class just because there's so much material. But he heard about this famous preacher named Ambrose in Milan, and so he went to listen to Ambrose preach because he wanted to gain He wanted to hear his oratorical ability. He wanted to gain some insights into good rhetoric. So he went to hear the preacher for his style, and he ended up being convicted by his substance. 
Uh, Ambrose, by the way, this is just a little bit of a footnote, but I have to share it. Ambrose was the governor of Milan, and when the previous bishop died, the people loved their governor so much that they insisted that their governor become the next pastor of their church. I just put that kind of in our context here. It's hard for us to imagine a governor becoming our next pastor. But in any case, Ambrose was an exception to the rule. And so Augustine is convicted by the preaching of Ambrose. He also had some good friends who were converted and baptized and... One day, and all of these influences are kind of coalescing, converging. Um, And Augustine would say, and, and, and this even fits Augustine's understanding of salvation and really a biblical understanding of salvation, Augustine would say that he was running away from God. He wanted nothing to do with God. He was pursuing his sin with full abandon, but God was pursuing him. And so as Ambrose is preaching and his friends' testimonies begin to converge on his conscience and then the upbringing from his mother Monica, one day Augustine was walking outside in the garden and he heard some children nearby who were playing and he heard one of the kids say, pick it up and read it. And in his conscience, he felt as if That was like God prompting him. Maybe not the best theology, but this is his testimony. And so Augustine went immediately to find a copy of Scripture, and he picked it up and opened the codex. And in opening his Bible, his eyes fell to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And as he read those words, The word of God through the power of the Spirit opened his eyes to the truth, and Augustine was converted. Romans 13, 13, and 14, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And in that moment, uh, Augustine's dead heart was given new life. His blind eyes were able to see the truth, and his old life was crucified with Christ, and he became a new creature, as we understand is true for all of us in the moment that God converts us by revealing the truth of the gospel to us through the power of his Spirit. Now, as a believer, initially Augustine was considering a monastic life, and uh, it was really around the time of Athanasius, so uh, a generation or two before Augustine, that monasticism, the monastic movement, started to gain popularity, largely because the Roman Empire stopped persecuting Christians. And so for some Christians, they felt like if the world's not going to persecute us, then we need to kind of persecute ourselves. And so they exiled themselves for Jesus, so to speak, and uh, they lived kind of by themselves in the wilderness. And eventually this develops into uh, communities of monks living together, the idea being that they've abandoned the world to focus on a life of devotion to Christ. And, of course, we would understand that 
maybe that's not the best way to demonstrate your devotion to Christ since we're instructed in Scripture to be in the world even if we are not to be of the world. But in any case, that's a whole other lecture on monasticism. Um, Augustine's initial thought was, I want to be devoted to Christ, so maybe a life of uh, a monk is the life for me. And uh, yet the people in the church where he served, he was now back in modern-day Algeria, they wanted him to be their pastor. And so in 395, he became the co-bishop with the older bishop there, and he served then as the, the senior pastor of that church for 35 years until his death in the year 430. Um, Augustine wrote a number of important works that, again, it's just helpful for you to be familiar with this so that you have some understanding of who Augustine is, because he really is one of the most influential theologians in all of church history, especially in the West. And when we think about the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers uh, looked back to Augustine more than anyone else for their understanding of the grace of the gospel. I should say, more than anyone else outside of the New Testament. Obviously, they looked back to the New Testament and the apostles more than any other figure in church history. Uh, So important works would include his work on the Trinity, and then also a work that he wrote called The City of God, which reminded Christians that their, their home is in heaven and not on this earth, which was particularly relevant when he wrote it because in the 400s, the western half of the Roman Empire was being conquered systematically by Germanic tribal groups. And uh, so Christians in Rome were wondering what was happening, and Augustine was reminding them that the Roman Empire was not their home. Heaven was their home. With that as an introduction to Augustine, I want to talk just a little bit about Augustine and the gospel of grace. So Augustine's focus on grace, especially in response to a false teacher named Pelagius, is such that Augustine becomes known as the doctor of grace, um, because that was such a theme in the things that he wrote, and it really was the theme of his own testimony. As I said, Augustine was running away from God, and yet God in his grace pursued the unworthy sinner and gave him eternal life, even though Augustine had done nothing to merit that grace or that favor. And of course, grace even means undeserved or unmerited favor, and that was one of Augustine's key themes. Uh, Pelagius was a British monk who had come to Rome, and in Rome he had seen... um, Really, the sinful lifestyle of Roman sailors and others there in Rome, who all claimed to be Christians because, as we talked about last week, the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity, so now everybody claims to be a Christian, and yet they were living like total pagans. And so Pelagius started teaching that through good works, you could please God. Uh, This was all built on a understanding of Pelagius that man is born basically good, that he doesn't have, that mankind doesn't have a sin nature. And so through your own good works, you can merit some sort of 
justification before God, and in essence, you can work your way to heaven. That's kind of where Pelagianism leads. People are born basically good, they don't need a change in nature, and so through their good works, they can please God in a saving way. And Augustine, when he encountered that, he rightly and biblically reacted to it by saying that is false teaching, that's works righteousness, that's legalism, and that has your, your good works have no saving power in the eyes of God. And so Augustine emphasized human depravity, that sinners are born with a sin nature, that they are enslaved to sin, that they are dead in their sins, that they are blinded by sin. And unless God comes and opens blind eyes and imparts life to dead hearts and grants freedom from enslavement, then there is no salvation apart from his work of grace. And that was Augustine's emphasis. So I just want to show you this. Um, And again, you have this in your workbook. But uh, just to make sure that you uh, see it here in the PowerPoint. And and there's a couple of blanks in the workbook. I've tried to underline those terms here on the PowerPoint in case you are wondering why certain terms are underlined and put in bold. But Augustine taught that sinners are not justified on the basis of their own merits they are saved by grace. And if, if you hear this, you're probably going, well, yeah, of course, that's the gospel. We all know that. We all understand that. And uh, I'm glad that you recognize that. Uh, but I want you to see key leaders in church history affirming that because there are so many who want to twist what some of these early Christian leaders taught and try to make them say things that they didn't say, it's helpful to see them saying what we all know to be true. So here's Augustine, a quote from him. We conclude that a man is not justified by the precepts of a holy life, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In a word, not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. Not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of grace. Not by the merits of deeds, but by free grace. And that's just a wonderful, very succinct articulation of the reality that we are justified, we are declared holy in the eyes of God, declared righteous in the eyes of God, not because of our own righteous works, but entirely because of the free gift of grace which he gives to those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, The second point there in your workbook is that Old Testament saints likewise were not saved by works or on the basis of works, but rather through faith in Christ. So Augustine taught that in the Old Testament, Abraham and the other patriarchs and those uh, Old Testament believers, they were saved not because they did a bunch of good stuff or kept the law, they were saved because they looked forward to the Messiah, and it's his sacrifice that pays for their sins, just as it's his sacrifice that pays for our sins. And so you can see the quote there from Augustine that it's, they were saved because they set their belief on the coming mediator. Thirdly, because salvation is by grace and not by works, Even the worst of sinners can be saved. And I think this is a a glorious truth of the gospel. That, in fact, 
There's a guy who comes after Augustine. We probably won't be able to read anything from him. His name is Prosper of Aquitaine. But he has this great quote where he says that, in essence, no one is so good as to be able to deserve the gospel, but no one is so bad as to be beyond the reach of the gospel. And that is the truth and the glory of the gospel, that even the worst of sinners can be saved because it's all by God's grace and it's all because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. So here Augustine says, with none of their merits going before them, you, O Lord, will save them. All in them is rough, all is foul, all to be detested. And though they bring nothing to you whereby they may be saved, for nothing you will save them, that is, with the free gift of your grace. We bring nothing, and yet God gives us everything. That is what grace is all about. And then a fourth just key point from Augustine's teaching on grace, the gospel of grace precludes anyone from boasting about their salvation. And uh, I don't need to read that quote, but Augustine essentially says, because you didn't do anything to merit God's grace, you can't claim any part in it, and therefore you can't boast about it except to boast in Christ. Now, I said at the beginning that we were going to primarily use Augustine to highlight the grace of the gospel in the 5th century, and I think you can see that there in those quotes, and those quotes are really just representative of probably another two dozen or so that we could uh, produce. But I did want to just quickly show you that Augustine also upholds the truth of the Scripture as his highest authority, And and I want to show you this quickly. But you'll see that Augustine affirms the inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy is a fancy theological way of saying that it's without error. To say it positively, Augustine affirms that the Bible is true. It's true in the whole, and it's true in all of its parts. Because God cannot lie, Scripture is free from error. So here's Augustine. I have learned to yield... This respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And that's because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Word of God. God is true. His Word is truth. And Augustine affirmed that. Secondly, Augustine affirmed the authority of Scripture. And uh, I have quite a bit about this in the workbook. You can see there, I just have one slide in the PowerPoint. But because it comes from God, Scripture comes with divine authority, and Augustine affirmed that. And so here he talks about Christ, the mediator, having spoken what he judged sufficient, first by the prophets, that's the Old Testament, then by his own lips, that's the Gospels, and afterwards by the apostles, that's the New Testament, he has, besides produced the scripture, which is called canonical, so that's a reference to the Bible, which has paramount authority and to which we yield assent in all matters. And uh, some of the other details that I have in the workbook there show that Augustine taught that the scripture is a higher authority than previous church fathers, that the scripture is a higher authority than anyone living in Augustine's own time, and that the Scripture is a higher authority even than church councils. Uh, 
And again, that's very significant because that is the fundamental or, yeah, I would say it's the essence, it's the fundamental truth of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, means that scripture alone is our highest authority. So that in matters of faith and practice, if there's any sort of dispute or dissension, the highest and final court of appeal to which we can look for guidance, for truth, for determining what we should believe and how we should live, it is the Bible. It is the Word of God. And Augustine affirms that, and he affirms it repeatedly. Here's just one example. And then the sufficiency of Scripture, also a very important truth, that Scripture contains all we need for life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about the knowledge of God, gives us all that we need for life and godliness. And then later in that passage, he talks about how it's the prophetic word in which the knowledge of God is revealed to us. Here's Augustine saying that same thing. For among the things that are plainly laid down in Scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the manner of life. Uh, So in church history, they talk a lot about faith and practice. Faith refers to doctrine. Practice refers to how you live. And the Bible gives us everything we need to know what to believe and how to live in a way that honors the Lord and prepares us for eternity. Okay. So just one last slide on this point, and that is to, um, again, make that connection between Augustine and the Reformers, and even to us today. We look to the Word of God as our highest authority. We affirm that it is true, it is free from error, it is authoritative for what we believe and how we live, and it is sufficient in that God has revealed in the Scriptures all that is needed for believers in the church age. And I just think it's really cool, again, to see here one of the foremost theologians of church history, Augustine, affirming those same things, affirming the grace of the gospel and affirming the primacy of the Scriptures. Let's talk a little bit about John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom. Uh, This picture of John is from an 11th century painting. Uh, There is an earlier fresco of him from the ceiling of the Hagia Sophia, which is the big church in Istanbul. It became a mosque, and uh, now they've converted it more into a museum. Uh, But I, I say that because, again, this picture of John Chrysostom is from seven centuries after his life, we have no idea if he actually looked like that or dressed like that. And I tried to kind of hide the halo because we do know that he didn't walk around with a big circle around his head. But in any case, I just think it's important to state those things because when you see some of these early Christian leaders dressing like medieval popes or like even modern patriarchs or, or bishops... I think it's helpful to recognize that the painting represents, again, the projection of the artist from the time when it was painted or drawn, not necessarily the reality of how these guys would have uh, looked or lived. 
Uh, John Chrysostom was born in Antioch. Uh, That's the same Antioch as Acts chapter 11, where the church was uh, the first predominantly Gentile church was established, the church of the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. So he's born in Antioch, and he was also trained in rhetoric as a young man. Um, After his conversion, he too wanted to demonstrate his devotion to the Lord, and so he actually lived a monastic life. He lived as a monk for a period of two years, and he was so severe in the sort of self-discipline that he uh, endured that uh, because he didn't eat well, in fact, he went long periods of time without eating at all, he damaged his health for... uh, He damaged his health to the point where he had to return to Antioch and uh, probably had some sort of long-term effects from that. Um, But his time in the wilderness, he also dedicated himself to memorizing Scripture, and that served him well as a preacher when he returned to Antioch. So he returns to Antioch, and he begins to preach in the church there and becomes the senior pastor of the church in Antioch. And one of the things that's really fascinating about Chrysostom is Chrysostom could rightly be called the father of expository preaching. Now, when I use the term father, I don't mean he was the first person in church history to preach verse by verse, line by line through the New Testament. But what I mean is he really is an early and very popular promoter of this approach to preaching and teaching the Bible, which, of course, we're familiar with here because our pastor is a renowned expositor in our own generation. Uh, Chrysostom's oratorical ability earned him a nickname, uh, and that nickname is Golden Mouth, which is what Chrysostom means. So Chrysostom was not his last name. uh, It was his nickname. So there's John the Golden Mouth. And in the same way that somebody might talk about somebody today having a a silver tongue, uh, meaning they're really smooth in the way they communicate, sometimes it's used as kind of a negative, but they're really smooth in their communication ability, John had a golden mouth because he was almost the Spurgeon of the late 4th and early 5th century. Uh, Born in 347, and he dies in the early 5th century in the year 407. So, in some senses, he is probably the most, if, if Augustine is arguably the most famous theologian of the late patristic period, Chrysostom is the most famous preacher of the late uh, patristic period. And I just think it's, again, so cool that he was a biblical expositor going verse by verse through the New Testament. In the year 397, um, through no effort of his own, it was a friend of his who appointed him without him even knowing it, he, his name got put in the running to become the senior pastor of the church in Constantinople. Constantinople was the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And so he was appointed by the emperor, uh, the, the bishop of Constantinople, and he served in that role for 10 years. I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Pelagius that in the Roman Empire, everybody claimed to be a Christian, but not everybody really was truly converted. 
Uh, We would see similar things in parts of our own country where cultural Christianity, you know, parts of the Bible Belt, where everybody says, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because everybody here is a Christian. And you almost have to work to show them that they're not truly saved in order to preach the gospel to them. That was Chrysostom's experience in Constantinople. So he's constantly preaching against worldliness and against the kind of behavior that would evidence hearts that have not been converted so that he can share the gospel with them. Well, in his zeal to preach against worldliness and to preach against those who flaunted their wealth, the empress, the wife of the Roman emperor, took offense because she thought he was talking about her. And in that, the a controversy ensued, and the conflict reached the point at which uh, Chrysostom was exiled. Uh, it's one thing to make the emperor mad. It's another thing to make the empress mad. And the result was he got booted from Constantinople and uh, was sent into exile and died in exile in the year 407. But one of the really neat things, again, about Chrysostom is many of his sermons, they're called homilies, many of his sermons have been preserved. They've survived. And so you could go online. It's really easy. Google Chrysostom homilies, and you'll find that he preached through, I was counting them up, I think it's about 17 books of the New Testament that he preached through. And so... In the same way that you would go to a MacArthur commentary and see how Pastor John handles a text, you can go online and see how John Chrysostom, a 4th century Bible expositor, how did he handle a text? And one of the things that's especially encouraging is that because Chrysostom had a literal approach to the Scripture, a literal hermeneutic, most of the time... What he concludes about a text, you and I would say, yeah, we agree with that because we see that same thing in that same text. And uh, it's a really fun exercise to kind of compare notes with the Spurgeon of the fourth century. All right. With Chrysostom, the main reason I have him in here is because of his commitment to biblical truth. But kind of like Augustine, who's mainly here because of his commitment to the gospel of grace, I want to show you that Chrysostom also taught a gospel of grace, which is not surprising because the New Testament teaches a gospel of grace. And so if you have a pastor, a preacher, who's preaching verse by verse through the New Testament, when he comes to those passages that teach the gospel of grace, he's going to teach that same gospel if he's being faithful to the text. And that's exactly what Chrysostom does. Uh, A number of years ago, I was teaching a summer school class on this same content, and we were right at this point. uh, The summer school class, because it was a concentrated class, it was lectures for like almost five hours a day. So if you think the the one-hour version is painful, imagine having to sit there for five hours. And uh, one of the guys in the class Uh, came up to me and he said, hey, I've got a relative who's actually training to be a Roman Catholic priest. He's visiting me and he would like to come to class tomorrow. And I said, great, sounds good, bring him. And I was glad that he had given me a little bit of a heads up because it's always good to just know that that is going to take place. So the next day, 
uh, we taught the class, and uh, there was a young man who was training to be a Roman Catholic priest who was there in the class. And we were talking about Augustine and Chrysostom and Jerome and some of the other figures, Ambrose from the 4th and 5th centuries. And uh, because I knew that he was going to be there, the night before, I put together a list. I think I had 10, but I could have done as many as at least two dozen long citations from Chrysostom on passages that teach justification by grace through faith alone. And we took probably an hour of that class, and I let Chrysostom preach the gospel to this Roman Catholic. Um, As it ended up, he ended up not pursuing the priesthood, not because of my class, but because of other reasons. So he didn't end up actually becoming a Roman Catholic priest. But I just found Chrysostom to be such a helpful window into the gospel, again, because He's not just talking theologically, he's taking you back to specific texts, and he's talking exegetically through the text. So it was really fun to use one of these church fathers as a means for sharing a precise understanding of the gospel, even with somebody who's part of the Roman Catholic system, which of course has obscured the gospel of grace. Um, In the workbook, I have five of these quotes. Uh, Again, this is representative of about two dozen that I've found, probably more than that, might be more like 30. Um, I won't read 30 quotes this morning. I'm just going to read three. But I want you to be assured that this is not just three random statements that were cherry-picked, but rather this really is representative of uh, Chrysostom's understanding of the gospel. This is Chrysostom on Romans chapter 3, verse 27. He says, But what is the law of faith? It is being saved by grace. Here Paul shows God's power in that he has not only saved, but even justified and led them to boasting, and this too without needing works, but looking for faith only. So there you see an emphasis on justification through faith only. Alone, You see that same thing in this quote from Colossians 1, 26 to 28. Again, this is Chrysostom preaching on these texts. This is where he's getting his material. I love this quote. To have brought humanity more senseless than stones to the dignity of angels simply through bare words and faith alone, without any hard work, is indeed a rich and glorious mystery. It is just as if one were to take a dog quite consumed with hunger and mange, foul and loathsome to see, and not so much as able to move, but lying passed out, and to make him all at once into a human being and to display upon him a royal throne. What a great picture of the gospel, right? We were like dead dogs, dead, dirty, disgusting dogs, lying in the street, and God has in his grace transformed us into princes who are welcomed into his family and given a royal throne. And again, on the basis of faith alone. Uh, Just one more quote. Uh, This one from 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. And here Chrysostom talks about how the gospel sounds too good to be true. And 
it kind of does, right? I do nothing, I get everything. How is this possible? It sounds too good to be true. So here's Chrysostom. For as people on receiving some great good ask themselves if it is not a dream, as not believing it, so it is with respect to the gifts of God. What then was it that was thought so incredible, so unbelievable? It seemed to them incredible that a person who had misspent all his former life in vain and wicked actions should afterwards be saved by faith alone. And so on account of this, Paul says, it is a saying to be believed. So I love that. So again, um, I get just really jazzed and energized by these kinds of things because we see our convictions as evangelical Christians represented so clearly by these very well-known church leaders. And again, this is the 4th and 5th century, which, just to put that in perspective, is uh, 350 to 400 years after the events of the book of Acts. That's almost, well, like I said this morning, uh, the year 2020, 400 years since the coming of the pilgrims to Plymouth in 1620. So it's about that length of time that has passed uh, when we think about when these guys lived from the events uh, of the book of Acts and the beginning of the church. All right, Chrysostom and truth. And here I just want to show you that like Augustine, Chrysostom affirmed the inerrancy of the Bible. This is his comment on John 17, 17, your word is truth. And Chrysostom interprets that as That is to say, there is no falsehood in it, and all that is said in it must happen, which is a very clear statement of the inerrancy of Scripture. Chrysostom affirms the authority of Scripture. I mean, his whole life affirmed the authority of Scripture. Why do you exposit the Bible week in and week out if you don't believe in the authority of Scripture? But here he states it. He says, these then are the reasons, but it is necessary to establish them all from the scriptures and to show with exactness that all that has been said on this subject is not an invitation, not an invention, excuse me, of human reasoning, but the very sentence of the scriptures. And so there Chrysostom is saying, look, you have to go back to the Bible and demonstrate from the Bible that what you're claiming has biblical warrant. And then we could talk about the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, This is Chrysostom commenting on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired and is adequate or sufficient to make the man of God complete. Um, But I love what Chrysostom says in this quote, and I won't read it. But he says that Paul was telling Timothy, scripture is sufficient for you in my absence. And for us who live outside of the apostolic age, we don't have the apostles, but we have the testimony of the apostles in Scripture and the teaching that is canonized in the New Testament. It is sufficient even in the absence of having any living apostle in the church today. And then this is really cool, and this is, we're getting here to the end of our slides, but the clarity of Scripture. Chrysostom believed that God revealed his truth in a way that was clear, perceptible, understandable, and should be interpreted in a literal, meaning a straightforward and normal way. 
And in fact, in one of these quotes, Chrysostom talks about how he interpreted the Bible. He says, We ought to unlock the meaning of the passage by first giving a clear interpretation of the words. So we look at what the words say and mean. And then he says, We must not attend to the words only, but turn our attention to the sense and learn the aim of the speaker. That's what we call authorial intent. And the cause and the occasion, that's what we call historical context. And by putting all these things together, we can turn out the hidden meaning. In other words, the meaning that may not immediately seem obvious to us, we can decipher the meaning by studying the words, by studying the sense, that would be the lexical and syntactical uh, side of the passage, the context, both historically and the flow of the argument, and the aim of the speaker, the authorial intent. What I love about this quote is these are the same principles that we teach seminary students today about how to interpret the Bible. And here you have a fourth, early fifth century preacher saying, when I look at the scripture, here are the tools that I use to interpret it, which are the same tools you would use to interpret any piece of literature if you're doing so in a way that honors what the author intended when he wrote it and doesn't try and create a new meaning based on reader response, which I know is popular in today's uh, literature classes, but just really encouraging. Our hermeneutic, our method of interpreting the Bible, you can trace that through church history, which is, again, really cool. All right, so putting this all together, uh, there's our two gentlemen from this morning, Augustine and Chrysostom. Augustine, the doctor of grace, emphasizing the truth that we are saved not on the basis of works, but by God's grace through faith in Christ. And then Chrysostom, the great preacher, golden mouth, right? So we have the doctor of grace and golden mouth, and he's the, the famous preacher of church history, preaching verse by verse through the New Testament and interpreting it as his highest authority and in a way that seeks to preserve the straightforward and literal understanding of the Word of God. Final slide here is a slide we've already seen. And I, again, I want you to be encouraged as you think back and reflect on 4th and 5th century church history. Does the church still have the essential pillars of biblical orthodoxy intact 400 years into the history of the church? The answer to that, I would argue, is yes. And we see that in these three primary areas. The doctrine of the deity of Christ, protected, preserved, the worship of Christ, safeguarded by Athanasius and those at the Council of Nicaea, and certainly Chrysostom and Augustine would have affirmed that. And then the gospel of grace, affirmed by Augustine and also Chrysostom, we saw that this morning, and scripture as the highest authority, affirmed by Chrysostom as he preaches text by text week after week, also affirmed by Augustine, we saw that this morning. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is be encouraged. And how is it that these Christian leaders from centuries ago, how is it that they hold the same convictions that we hold? Or maybe to ask that question in chronological order, how is it that we hold the same convictions that they held? And the answer is because we're looking to the same source, the Word of God, and from that we see 
that it is our authority. It's all that we need for life and godliness. It teaches a gospel of grace through faith apart from works, and it is all for the glory of God, the triune God, who we worship in purity of doctrine and purity of devotion. All right. Well, I think that door opening indicates the fact that it is 10.01. So let me close us in a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning from the history of your church that we must worship you in purity, that we ought to live with gratitude because you saved us through nothing of our own effort, and that we ought to walk in obedience according to what you have revealed in your word. Father, we thank you for the lives and examples of faithful men throughout every generation of the history of your church. We don't seek to honor them or exalt them in any way, but rather to honor and exalt the one to whom they also looked, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray these things this morning for his glory and in his name. Amen.